Thoth's Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Friends and listeners, welcome back to yet a new weekly episode of the Thos Hermes podcast. This is episode number 16 of season 7 and today is the 12th of December 2021. That is 211212. Hmm, for all your numerologists out there, quite an impressive day. Well, and... Uh, my name is Rudolf, and I am going to present you this new episode, in a, which is a special episode, actually. I'm talking about gaming and virtual reality in the context of magic. And I'm talking to two people this week, Joby Bittman and Morgan Lee Serong. Tell you more about those two guys immediately. So expect two half-hour interviews instead of one large interview today because the, well, I'll tell you how that all happened and came together. It was quite a fun and interesting way this episode came into being. Well, if you're new to the show, welcome to the Thought Hermes podcast. Great to have you here. And for all of you who are returning listeners, great to have you back and a special welcome and warm welcome to all the patrons of the show those of you who make this show possible and sustainable. And yes, you know what's coming, guys. All of you who are not yet patrons, please consider it because we need more of you. I am not saying this just for fun. We need you. It's important to get your support. Um, it costs money to run the show. I don't earn anything from that, but it just costs money. And we need your support to be able to sustain that. So please Consider either a donation or becoming a patron and go on the website tothermes.com. That's www.thothermes.com. And there you will find the Patreon and the donation buttons that will bring you right into the correct spot. While you're there, other things to be done, of course. On the website. The website is not just for donations. The website is there for your information. Inform yourself about all those episodes that we have done so far. It's well over 100 by now. And uh, you find all of them online there. You can listen to them. You can download them, listen to them calmly at some other moment when you have no internet with you. And you especially find all the show notes for all the shows with the links to the guests to some supplementary information you will need about them and about what they are talking. So real becoming a little encyclopedia, this website, encyclopedia of important people from the world of Western esotericism. And um, well, last week's response to the show with John Michael Greer was great again. Of course, John Michael is such a special guy and it's the second time he was with us and again, uh, your download figures have been really high for that show. 
really great thank you so much but thanks especially to john michael greer for being with us and as you know he will come back in a couple of months again right so but today is joby bitman and morgan lee serong and uh, um well if you have any comments to our shows if you have any ideas who you would like to hear for example or if you want to suggest your own music Yes, your music, if you're a musician, a composer, and are in the occult, and your music relates a bit to that, well, do please get in touch. Um, you know that each week we have a musician of that kind. Well, no, almost each week we have somebody who is one of our listeners. Sometimes in between, we have also other music that relates to the occult. But today, today, again, um, you might remember back in September and October, I played for you music by Kristen Linder. Kristen Linder, who has quite an impressive biography. I'm not going to tell you a third time about him, but he is an award-winning composer also of film music and uh, that kind of stuff. A really great guy. And he turned up in September on my email with a special gift, with his latest CD that he released, and the permission to use his music on the show. We did that already twice. And today is the sec third and last time that we use tracks from his latest CD to be the music for our show here today. And uh, once again, Christopher, thank you so much. It's a great gift that you made us here. Of course, that's also a kind of donation, guys. You see, it's not just money alone. It's also your input into this show that can be a nice contribution to the show. Crystal Lindner's um, CD, his latest uh, release is called Across the Never, Across the Never, and we have chosen three tracks here today again. And uh, well, the first track that we're going to hear now is called You Were Always. So... Let's go and listen to Crystal Lindner from his city across the never you were always quite a program enjoy
You Were Always by Crystal Linder from his CD Across the Never. That CD was a gift by Crystal to be played on our show. And you should go, if you have not done in one of the two previous shows where I played this music, you should go on the website and check out the music uh, section of the show notes. And you will find links to Crystal's page. Quite an impressive bio he has. And we are very proud to have him as our fan and listener and that he has gifted that music. Thanks again, Christopher. So, as I said, this is a special episode because I don't have one guest, but two guests. But not in the way I had it uh, three weeks ago or two weeks ago, where I had Greg Kaminsky with me to be my co-host. No, today I interview one after the other two guests. Yes. And why is that? Well, I tell you how the whole story came into being instead of reading an excerpt from a book to you, uh, I will tell you how this came all into being. Um, I got an email from that guy, Joby Bittman, who introduced himself as a game designer and that he had just written the book, um, which is called The Book of the Antithesis, um, about gaming, tabletop gaming and magic and uh, it would be released shortly and if i were interested in talking to him about this um, to present his work and his book on the show well i do sometimes get those kind of uh, proposals and that's always great so if you if you have one yes no guarantee what i can do with it but do do get in touch with me of course and as you see hmm, i thought the subject was fascinating gaming world and as we are going to see i wasn't completely wrong the gaming world uh, is quite close also to occultism many of uh, uh, those who are occultists also do tabletop gaming and not just um, dungeons and dragons but other type as well and what has magic to do with that the subtitle of the book is treatise on the ritual theory and practice of game magic including ceremonial bias magic, demonic pacts, astral travel, divination, and the secret language of symbols. So that's all what we do, occultists, doesn't we? Don't we? Right. I said, yes, I'm really interested, but the subject, I, I'm not very well acquainted with tabletop gaming. That was never what I did, nor did my kids or whatever. So I probably cannot do a whole one-hour talk on this, but let me think. And I thought, and... I consulted my friend Mork, uh, Morgan once again. Uh, he is really the artistic director of occultism, as I called him, um, and asked him, hey, do you have somebody who is in the scene of maybe virtual reality or so? Do you know somebody there? Because that would be a perfect combination uh, with uh, gaming and gaming magic. And yes, of course, of course, Mog knew somebody that was Morgan Lee Sarong. I'm going to present her before her interview. I said, OK, let's do that double show, double feature on tabletop game magic and virtual reality magic. Both quite, um, I hate the word subculture, but uh, well, give me a better word for it. Send me an email. Come on, send me a bit word for it. So you know what I mean. Those special cultures where people are using virtual reality and gaming for their magic or have make a combination out of them. 
And here we go. That how that show, that double feature came into being. Now let me quickly tell you something about Joby, Joby Bittman. He started playing Dungeons and Dragons in the early 80s when his older stepbrother returned from college with a Holmes basic set. And then they moved to a new town. He lost his game of friends, continued to play alone for years, rolling up characters and running them through dungeons of his own design. And as it turns out, his activity turned out to be very similar to writing for role-playing games and practicing magic because he has also that background, Joby. He has then worked as a freelance writer and he's a game designer for over a decade now. He, his publications include Wizards of the Coast at Goodman Games or Lamentations of the Flame Princess. That's where the book comes from here today. And he's been privileged with the opportunity to work with professional projects such gaming lead legends as James Ward, who was an early Dungeons & Dragons game designer, etc., etc. So this is what we have here now, the book that I hold in hands. Hey, it's a beautiful book, the book of Antithesis, and it's the first grimoire written for Dungeon Masters. Yes. And, uh, well, the Dungeon Masters, for those who, like me, are not so firm with tabletop games, he is the guy who rules over a game, over a role-playing tabletop game. So um, a grimoire for a Dungeon Master, and this is really something that looks very interesting, is interesting, and yes, it really is a grimoire when you hold it in hand. It can, I'm sure it can be used beyond just role-playing. Um, writing fiction, for example, or just doing ritual, writing ritual for yourself. Right, but I have talked enough. Now let's now go and meet Joby Bittman in the USA. He lives there and um, he spoke to me about his work and his new book and how that all came into being and why. So let's go and meet Joby Bittman. And then when I come back for the break with a piece of music, after the break, there will be the second interview. More about that in a moment. Now it's the time to meet Joby Bittman. Here comes the interview. All is ritual, all is play, starts the foreword of that book I hold in hands, the book of antithesis. I'm not sure if I pronounced that completely correctly, but I'm speaking here to Joe Bittman, who wrote that book, and he'll be able to tell me exactly if it's... I'm used to antithesis with an I at the end, and it's an E here, so that made me unsure on how to pronounce it. Hi, Joe, how are you today? Hi, Rudolph. Thanks so much for having me on your show. Uh, of course, it's great a, to have you. A, a real thrill for me. And uh, yeah, it's the book of antitheses. Uh, okay. So there are, okay, there are so multiple antitheses uh, in, in the book. So um, there certainly are. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and we are we talk about a subject here today that, well, I assume that not everyone who listens here is completely familiar with. And that's good because we learned something here today. Well, at least I am not so much familiar with that. And when Job contacted me about his new book, the book of Antithesis, I was intrigued and fascinated because it's a treatise on the ritual, on theory and practice of game magic, including ceremonial dice magic and so on and so on. Um, so 
This is a fascinating subject I've never come across. So, Job, please fill us in a little bit. Where, where do we start? We start with board gaming, right? Uh, yes, sort of. Um, so basically, the, where this book is coming out of and where my background is basically is um, I've been a uh, like a tabletop game designer. So think, you know, Dungeons and Dragons and, you know, sitting around the table, rolling dice um, and, and kind of playing a game uh, with with some friends with your imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Um, uh I guess that's the background for where the book comes from. So I've been, you know, I've been playing Dungeons and Dragons since I was, uh, I don't know, I guess eight years old. Um, okay. And, uh, you know, I've also uh, for for uh, some time have been interested in, uh, you know, the occult and, and uh, Western uh, traditions. Um, so, you know, as I kind of did uh, self-study on that, um, I was always tying it back in my brain, back to role-playing games. Um Role-playing games for me, uh, for some reason, have always, um, I don't know, I, 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 the, I guess the ritual aspects have always kind of stuck out in my mind and, and, and come to the forefront when I'm playing it. Um, so this book is my attempt to, uh, you know, bring, um, you know, an occult uh study, I guess, to to role playing games and, and um, uh, as a way for people to understand role playing games. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, hopefully that answers your question. Uh, I, it does. Uh, Give a bit of background on on yourself. I mean, mostly on the on the on your occult background. I mean, the traditions that you cherish, maybe or maybe even practice as far as you want to tell the, us about it, of course. But um, can you let us know a little bit where where you come from in that part where our listeners are more familiar in? Um, sure. Um, so I would say, um, you know, my, my background is more of a, um, uh, I, I guess you could probably tell from reading the book, there's, there's a lot of chaos magic in there. Yes, certainly. Um, mm-hmm. and then, you know, I've, I've, I've read, you know, plenty of, uh, you know, of other works as well. Um, also sig- sigil magic seems to be something that you, right. You, yeah. Uh, yeah. You so, you know, right. Uh, yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, reading spare, um, right. Which, uh, was actually, uh, I preferred reading about spare than actually reading spare, but he's, <laughs> he's got I some good ideas. The only one here. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but yeah, he's got some great ideas, uh, too, with, you know, and, and, and a lot of that stuff comes out in the book. Um, and then as far as, you know, the, as gaming and, and, and the, and, a, you know, Western occult tradition, um, there's real, I, this is the first book as far as I know, I've looked everywhere. Um, but my book is the first book that's, that's trying to do something like this. Um, there was one other book by a, a gentleman named PE Bonewits, um, in this like 78 or 79 called, uh, authentic thirgy. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically that his, his whole book is, it's just taking like the magic systems from various, uh, tabletop role, role-playing games, mainly Dungeons and Dragons. I think he mentioned some other ones in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, and, and then him describing uh, like how those type of spells would be manifested using actual like um, magic traditions mm-hmm. or, you know, kind of, uh, you know, the I guess what the cult explanation would be um, to try to make your the magic in your games a little bit more 
I guess, authentic with the real world. I mean, even right. playing pretend. Right. Um, can, can you explain us that phrase that I opened with, which is actually opening the foreword in that book? All is ritual, all is magic. Uh, sorry, all is ritual, all is play. How, how, how would you explain that in a bit uh, more extensive way? Um, sure. Uh, I think that's from the forward by J.F. Martell. Uh, exactly. so there's an excellent mm -hmm. forward by J.F. Martell. Some uh, people, some of your listeners might be familiar with him as uh, he's one of the co-hosts of the uh, the uh, Weird Studies podcast. I don't know exactly. if you've heard of that before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, that's a great show. Absolutely. Um, and uh, so, I, I mean, I guess what he's getting at there um, is... Um, Uh, I just how we are all um, acting out rituals, um, but, you know, a ritual in, in, in one way of thinking about it could be playing like a child playing or mm -hmm. just how everyone anyone might pass the time with their imagination. Trying um, to imagine a, a different world from the real one that we are into, right? Right. Would, yeah, yeah. Yeah, probably. And exactly. Yeah. Mm. And, and uh, for me, um, I feel like one of the things that I've really uh, taken from my readings of the occult is that um, I, I feel like most of the, uh, the, the, the works that I've read are descriptions of the universe basically it's like someone writing a game system to uh that ex that describes their conception of like the whole universe so in a way it's kind of like a game that's a simulation a mental simulation mm -hmm. um and uh you know and when you play games when you play uh i don't know Any game, if you're playing Atari 2600 games, like I think maybe you're near the same age as, as me, Rudolph. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, with those little blocky graphics, your brain kind of, uh, you know, as you're playing filled out, um, like the context or what you're, you know, the, the, these blocks are actually people playing tennis or, <laughs> um, or aliens, you know, uh, being invading the earth and you're driving them off or something. Exactly. That was a good old thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the same thing, you know, like a game system, you know, you, they have uh, dice rolls and everything, but really it's, it's really a model. You're modeling, you're simulating the universe, right? Yeah. So that's how I can see games and, and, and the cult kind of merging together. And if you understand, if you kind of understand it at that, that level, then like anytime you're playing a game, you're like building a model or simulation of the universe that um, you're acting out certain things in. Mm -hmm. So my idea is that, you know, you can play these games and, you know, introduce elements that you uh, that you want to model in the game. Um, and, you know, it's, at some level, you might be able to, you know, if you follow the practices or, or, or do it on your own, um, you know, like a create you know whatever like sympathetic action um mm -hmm. in in a fictional universe that could that could help you uh uh you know uh you know make change um uh, in the real world and which is the aim of magic actually absolutely right you, right you create change by your will well one of the many possible definitions of magic of course yeah um i have to talk uh one second about the book itself which i hold sure. in hand here because it's it's a really beautiful book it's not something that you 
if you're not familiar like me, would expect from the, the gaming world, like a leaflet that goes with with a tabletop game or whatever. It's a really a beautifully bound book of about 200 pages. And when you open it, you have that sacred geometry figures on the inside and beautiful print, beautiful design. Um, it's a lovely, it's a lovely piece of art almost. Um, so congratulations to that. And then when you start reading the text, you find out that it's really seems to me like a introduction into magic even in general, which goes beyond an introduction to magic on on game magic, as you call it. Was that an intention or who is the book aimed for in your point of view? Sure. Uh, let me just answer those in, in series or comment in series. So the first thing is the, the book printing. Um, I want you to know, Rudolph, that uh, you got the first copy of the book that anyone in the planet has. Other than oh, the really? Wow. Wow. Yeah. Proud. <laughs> yeah. So the very first day, I, I just I guess the, the stars aligned. I gave him your address at the right time and your phone number and stuff. Mm -hmm. And the, I don't know this miracle of shipping over in the EU, but you got it like literally the day after it came from the printers that's so. uh, it was that's why it was still warm when, when I got yeah, <laughs> it actually came from to to tell our audience it came from finland to austria and visibly that was a quick connection absolutely mm -hmm. yeah so uh the publisher is uh, a publisher called lamentations of the flame princess um it's a american expat named james raji the fourth who um moved to finland many years ago um and uh he used to have a a metal zine you know um had a heavy metal music mm -hmm. um, called uh, Lamentations of the Flame Princess. And uh, he, um, I guess that went sideways and, or he, he canceled it. Um, and uh, there was some kind of, uh, you know, he got, he didn't have a job and uh, the Finnish government was running in this thing about, uh, to help uh, small businesses start their own company. So he took his existing metal zine, uh, Lamentations of the Flame Princess, and just reused that because he didn't want to file for a new business name. Mm -hmm. um, and he went from there. And um, Jane, all of James's books are, are well, not all of them, but most of them are a very high production quality. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the, uh, the, the book of antitheses is, uh, is the new, uh, part of his new release. And it's the most high end book in that. Um, yeah in yeah. that uh, thing. But um, the, the really interesting thing though, is that James found the, the publisher um, by uh, he looked around and there was one like two blocks from his apartment. And it turns out that um, I, you know what? I don't know the name of it right now. I think it says in the book, but um, that publisher has been continuously operating in, in some capacity since like the 17th century. Oh really? Um, yeah. So there's a lot of history behind it. And is that, uh, is that Ottawa book printing? That's uh, that's Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, I thought that was pretty amazing. So yeah, his books are really good. Um, and, um, I, I guess we'll talk about it later, but, um, if you, if you are interested in the book after reading this and, and you're in the EU, um, the, the book is available in the, the EU store um, mm -hmm. and uh, you can get it apparently the very next day. Uh, but if you're in the U.S., it's going to be a while before it makes its way uh, uh, palletized yeah. and over to the U.S. store. Sure. Um, but we'll we'll make we'll make sure that on the website within the show notes, we have the necessary link so people can find that. 
Uh, okay. And then I, now I already forgot what the second part. <laughs> well, the thing about Russ, it, it looks, um, I was asking who did you aim for with the book itself? Oh. Because it looks like yes. really an introduction into general magic. I mean, if somebody who is starting on magic and wants to have a little overview, I think the book is a perfect fit, but this was not your intention or was it? Um, it actually was my intent. So I, I you know, coming from the, the role-playing tabletop uh, game design world, I figured I, I do know a lot of people that are kind of interested in this in this mm -hmm. area and read about it. For the most part, it's not it's not something that 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 is Uh, generates a lot of interest, I don't think. Um, so I did try to write it in a way to kind of boil down, um, to boil down uh, just kind of mm -hmm. generic uh, intro to magic. Yeah. Um, and then apply it to like the basic things that you do uh, as a game master um, right. or a dungeon master. And for people who don't know, like when you play a tabletop game, um, in general, there's like one, one super player, you know, he's like the referee, the judge, it's called mm -hmm. the dungeon master or game master. And this would be the person that just kind of knows all the rules and knows what's going to happen um, in the game, like knows what the adventure is going to be. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other players of the table, they would just play out like a single character. Right. And this book is aimed for the game master for the for the for that person, right? Yes, correct. So, it, yeah, it's game. It's, in, it's aimed at the game master. Um, I think a, a lot of people, uh, different people could use it. Um, I mean, one of the things that I do in the book is um, I've got uh, I tried to make it so that when you're practicing the magic as described in the book, um, that it's focused on. Um, affecting change in a fictional universe, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, the reason why I did that is, is kind of like a, a guardrails for someone that's getting into the occult um, is, uh, you know, do this in your head with this fictional universe. And I, I think, you know, as I've seen that I it there's changes that happen in that fictional universe that to me don't didn't come from me. I, I don't know how to, else to describe it, but you mean in that gaming universe or in Correct, your yeah. personal universe uh, as well, well in parallel? Yeah, in both, honestly. Yeah. But um, so I so I did try to make it uh, experienced occultists might notice that some of the advice I give is kind of contradictory to what, mm -hmm. you, you know, say, like doing it a ritual like two minutes after midnight or something like that. Right. Um, There's a couple, there's a number of those things in there. I, I really don't, I hope people don't just take this book completely uh, at face value. Um, I was hoping, you know, I, I kind of weakened some of the things involved with it because I, I figured it's going to be the first time someone um, gets into something like this. And I wanted mm -hmm. to kind of slow the, slow the, the amount of change that, uh, that would happen. When Feel they, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. And I would like them, you know, hopefully that this is like the opening salvo that, you know, they never considered this, um, you know, or spirituality or, or whatever it is that, that, that is drawing them to this book. Um, yeah, that, that was going, uh, to be a question that I have and you partly answered it already, but let's go a bit further into that maybe because, sure. um, as I see, you are of the same opinion as I am when, when you start doing magic, it does not only depend on you if you know how it works, but the magical universe will react even to people who try out things, right? If we put it like that. So how do you, 
how do you consider somebody who is interested in tabletop or an expert even in tabletop uh, gaming and then wants to be the master of that game that you suggest here and he gets in touch with magic um, and he feels that something around him or her is happening what what would be either a, a protection or be a next step where uh, depending what you want Sure. I mean, you know, if someone, I, I would definitely recommend, uh, you know, just doing a lot of banishing rituals. So, I mean, every day you should be doing one. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, I, 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 as outlined in the book, I mean, I just tell people to, you know, keep a notebook and try to write down all these various, um, influences. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and then when you read back later, I think, I, I, I think people will be shocked kind of to, to, see what kind of things start happening when they start dabbling in this. Absolutely. But I mean, I don't say this only as a warning and not at all. I'm also mean this as a, as an incitement, you know, to, to, to maybe go further. And I, I could well see that book be an introduction, a primer for many people who are interested in magic. Would you agree? I think so. I mean, and, and it's as you can as you see in the book, it's kind of boiled down. I mean, if you look at the actual practice part, it's only maybe a third of the book or yeah. less than half. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I think there's a lot out there for people. Um, and, you know, I, I, one thing I have always noticed that uh, like a similarity between gamers and occultists is, uh, yeah, this seems like there's a lot of bibliom. Uh, uh, like bibliophiles out there. <laughs> yeah, um, that's true. <laughs> so, you know, whether your spirit, spirituality is just, you know, a way for your, uh, your, your inner self to just get beautiful books, um, or not. I mean, the <laughs> gamers are, are much the same way. So this, this is definitely a beautiful book. Um, but that's an interesting point of view. I've never seen it like that, actually, but um, you're absolutely right. Um, the collection of beautiful books seems to be one of a defining issue for cultists, right? <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And the most beautiful books that are printed nowadays are of those independent publishers doing books on magic and occultism. In fact, it's, it's, it's quite amazing. It's quite amazing. Yeah. Um, how, how, where did the combination of magic and gaming take you you job as a as a, um, would you call yourself an occultist or is that too far um i i would call myself maybe like a uh let's see i I don't know, an, an outsider occultist. I, I, I've never <laughs> practiced any kind of magic with any other people. I've never gone in any group and just, and, you know, just uh, it, uh, discuss things. Even I was, mm -hmm. I, I've, I tried in the past a couple of times, uh, like seeking out some magical orders. Um, I live in the Seattle area, so there was mm -hmm. a magical order that I was uh, interested in checking out. And, um, I, I, the, the, the people seemed very, uh, I don't know, political or something. I just, mm -hmm. they turned me off. I wasn't really interested in it. So, um, mm -hmm. I just kind of, I just read stuff on my own and do my own kind of version of it, I guess. And do you um, practice on your own? Yes. Oh yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, sure. And, um, I've definitely had some very, uh, let's say uncomfortable, um, 
life experiences that mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel was uh, caused by by being a neophyte a lot in, in a lot of this stuff. But OK, um, you know, that's now, now you're more seasoned and you know your way around. I, I feel like I am. I mean, I, I, I'm constantly learning and uh, oh, we all we all are, aren't we? Yeah. 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 And, and this is uh, so. Okay. Yeah. All right. I'm an occultist. I'm a cultist now. Okay. Good. Good. Good to hear that. Good to hear that. Um, so somebody who is listening now to us here um, and has no experience, not in magic, but no experience in tabletop gaming. Let's take it from that end once, right? Um, but would be interested in that combination. You are experienced in in both sides, right? Um What would you suggest to such a person how to start in a way that one gaming does not get into the way of be magic or the other way around? Uh, Sure. I mean, if you're if you're interested in in getting into game tabletop gaming now, uh, probably the easiest way would be to to seek out someone that's playing Dungeons and Dragons uh, Mm -hmm. fifth edition. That's the latest edition that's out now. Um, If you have a game store in your area, a lot of times there's like weekly or monthly games that you can go um, play. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, you know, easiest way would be to uh, play with some other game master um mm. and and until you kind of understand what's going on um and then is this a long process in your opinion or how much time or how much time would you need to to be experienced enough to then become um a game master of how you proceed here in the book oh sure i mean it, it all depends on the you know the the, the personality or the the uh, i don't know the the individual mm-hmm. um I, I would say maybe like six months uh, of playing before I, I would recommend even trying to run a game. Um, mm-hmm. 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 But I mean, there's plenty of people out there who just dive right into it. They, you know, have a group of friends and they're like, hey, let's try this out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the one person, whoever likes to read rules and, and analyze them and um, and understand them, synthesize them, uh, that, that would probably be the best person that to become the game master. Mm hmm. And in that magical context, uh, it sounds to me, again, I'm not experienced in gaming of that kind at all. So please do correct me if I see that wrongly. But uh, it occurs to me that uh, that person who leads the game in whatever context is quite a powerful and alpha personality to do that. Right. Um, So when you then go into the magical field with that and you have your players there who are maybe not yet experienced in that field um can that become a power game hmm. yes definitely um i mean there's all kinds of games out there, there there's there's a whole other subset of games called like um story games hmm. where where they uh you know they are uh specifically don't have a game master everyone's the game master yeah um it limits the type of games that you can run um really Mm -hmm. um but yeah definitely i mean the you would have to have uh usually a stronger personality types are the people who are kind of drawn you know Mm -hmm. quite naturally to to being the game master of a game Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. if you have strong uh you know political um uh 
dislike of of playing a game where there's like you know a patriarchal uh player that's you know lording over everybody else then um you can definitely go seek out story games um and I, i i think you can adapt the material um from the book of antitheses, uh, you know, to kind of help you along doing that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. Now let's dive a little bit into the adventure because the second part of the book, um, after having given an outline of magical approach, the second part of the book is really laying out the, the adventure itself, right? Yes. So what did you make choose that German, it's, it's, it's actually happening in the German city of Hanau near Frankfurt. Um, what did you make choose that approach, that, 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 that very adventure? Sure. Uh, so James Raggi from Lamentations of the Flame Princess had uh, written another adventure called um, Better Than Any Man that was based, uh, you know, set in the, the 30 Years War. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, it, the With that particular game, so the, the, this book actually is written for the uh, Lamentations of the Flame Princess RPG game system, mm-hmm. uh, which is basically like a, a whittled down version of Dungeons and Dragons. Right. Um, and if you actually if you are someone who does who's not really interested in like a, a game with a bunch of rules to it, mm-hmm. um, like like fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons has um, Lamentations of the Flame Princess would be a great a great uh, one to check into. And all, all of the guys books are gorgeous. So um, if you if you are a bibliophile mm-hmm. and, and you like uh, nice printings and, and very cool art, um, I would definitely check them out. L-O-T-F-P dot com. Right. Um, so that that it's actually um, a part of the adventure of that uh, of of lo lo what do you say lo tfp right that that's that's sure the yeah mm. so but but it's also system uh, what we call system neutral uh, mm-hmm. which is basically is it's generic enough that you can use it with other game systems there are um Uh, like the monsters have what's called a stat block, a statistic block, which would just be like when you're running in the game, you need to know like how many health points a a monster has Mm -hmm. uh, or hit points or like how smart it is or how, you know, how, how many points of damage it's, you know, claws do or something like that. Yes. Um, So those are all in the book for limitations. It can easily be adapted to something else. Um, So uh, the, all of limitations of the flame princess, their default system, they call it uh, weird fantasy. Wait, weird historical fan. No. I forgot what, what, but it's, it's basically weird fantasy being, probably right. That, that's yeah. Yeah. It's weird mm-hmm. fantasy, but it's based like in an alternate earth, basically um, mm-hmm. like 17th century alternate earth. Yeah. Um, so most of the game, the adventures are around Europe and stuff like that. Um, so I picked, I, I'm not sure exactly why I picked Hanno. Um, I was mm-hmm. uh, just reading up on the 30 years war, but um It was uh, a lot of the important st- place during that 30 years war. Yeah, sure. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the stuff in that actually is is historically accurate. And I, I like like what like there's the uh, what is it, like the devil's orgy, Fron Renberg. Mm-hmm. And I, I actually found like Fron Renberg is from uh, some uh, uh, a historical document of uh, some witches that were interrogated mm-hmm. and they and they to- so they made I uh, made up this place or, or told of this place called Fron Renberg. Right. Um, so a lot of the stuff in the book is 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 actually coming from real uh, real history. Right. Right. 
And then you have that part seven, which I which I found very amusing. It's actually just imagery. It's called demonic physiognomy, and it's about ten pages or so of yeah, well, of parts of demons. Not only not only even not almost no faces, but mostly body parts, right, or wings, or or, or whatever. So, wh what does that serve for? Uh, sure. Uh, first off, I, you know, I already plugged JF Martel from Weird Studies. I got to plug um, mm -hmm. the artist who did all the art uh, art in that book, which uh, his name is um, Benjamin Mara. Mara. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. He he does a lot of, uh, of really interesting stuff. He's uh, I guess he started out in underground comics, but now he's kind of a fancy pants illustrator that works for lots of big people. Um, uh, but anyway, so the, the whole uh, to, to rewind on, on where the demon parts came on the, uh, I think I call it demonic physiognomy. Yeah, exactly. Um, mm. so basically, um, the book, it, the book of antitheses is, is works on a bunch of different levels. One of the things I try to do with it is it's a, uh, it's like, a a deconstruction of a, uh, of an RPG module. Mm -hmm. Um, so to that aim, um, uh, one of the things I did in that book is, is, uh, there's no random tables in the entire book. Okay. So, um, demonic physiognomy, if you look at it a certain way, it, you know, it's like a catalog of demon parts, but if you look at it in another way, it's actually, uh, and the way I attended is a deconstruction of the random table in an RPG game. Mm -hmm. So there's no numbers, but I mean, if you use your imagination, you can go through that and on the pages of heads, you could take a die with an appropriate number of faces, roll it and come up with a head and proceed through the chapter to create a new demon. Ah, okay. Interesting. So it's, it's all about imagination and, and your own, your own imagination and making the fantasy world up, right? Right, right. And, and, and I neglected to point this out earlier, but I mean, the techniques that are in this book, you could you don't have to be a game master if you want to if you wanted to uh, say you're writing, uh, you know, a novel mm -hmm. and you wanted to go more deeply into some of the characters, mm -hmm. um, you could use the techniques in this book to do that. If you're writing right. a screenplay, I'm in uh, just all I can imagine all kinds of scenarios of, of people that are doing creative work where they could kind of use the techniques in this book to um to make, to flesh them out and make them more real. Well, I, but actually you're leading me to something that I was going to ask you. It is, it is also like a handbook for creating magical ritual in some way, certain type of magical ritual, of course, but would you, would you also see it like that? As you just said, creative work, but also in the magical world. Yeah, definitely. I mean, when I read it back to, I mean, you can, tell that I'm not, I, I haven't done a lot of any kind of workings with other people mm -hmm. and it's all very solitary the way I did that book. Right. And, um, if I, if I do do a, a follow-up book in the future, I think what I want to focus more on is, um, is the kind of ritual that you can create using with the players and the game master mm -hmm. working together yeah. that they're, they're all in on it, you know, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but that, that certainly would be a very interesting follow-up and you should keep us abreast of the way if you do that, because oh, that's yeah, really, definitely. really interesting. And 
that might be a tricky question. I don't know. But um, sometimes I have the impression that um, the world of magic and occultism and the world of tabletop gaming, particularly more than online gaming, tabletop gaming, um, and are a bit part of the same. I hate that word, but it's the word everybody uses uh, of the same subculture right of mm. the, um, um, would you agree on that uh, does it touch base also there or do you see that differently no the, yeah the, the venn diagram of, of occultists and gamers is uh, i'm sure there's a, there's you know quite a, a a large area of overlap there mm -hmm. oh, even the solitary part of it isn't it Oh yeah, definitely. I, I I can't tell you that you know I I you know I, I've been in RPG uh, you know tabletop game design for for over a decade. Mm -hmm. um, I, I I got paid for my first piece in like 2008, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but a lot a lot of designers are very interested in the occult, um, and right. they're not practitioners themselves. They are at least you know familiar with many of the larger figures. Absolutely. So are writers of weird fantasy, which is also very closely linked mm -hmm. to that old world. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> that reminds me. I, I even sometimes have the impression that Finland is a good is a good bottom ground for that as well. So I was not surprised to receive that book from Finland, to be honest. <laughs> Um, well, uh, Job, we are coming towards the end of our talk, I'm afraid. Um, but once again, thank you for contacting me about this. I would have probably never found out about you and that book, and it would have been a pity for me and for our listeners if I hadn't. Um, but before you go, uh, you just told us a bit about uh, maybe a future plan you have in that field. Any other future plans that you would like to share with our audience and uh, and tell us about ah uh, sure um yeah uh, i mean uh, the, the very next thing on my plate is i'm working on my own game system called um, brutal blades rpg mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um but you know that's probably at least another year out um covid that's going to be in that in magical world or uh, it's It's hard to say, Rudolph. It's okay. I've I've done I've the this game system, the the Brutal Blades RPG game system. Um, I it basically I started out trying to invoke masculine archetypes, and um, and then um, I kind of spread out from there to different kind of archetypes. So the different classes you can play, um, mm -hmm. there's, there's a lot of, uh, you know, meaning behind all of this stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, my magic is my design and my design is my magic sort of, I, if yeah. that's a good explanation. Yeah. Um, yeah. so it's in everything I do. Um, the book of antitheses is, is, you know, obviously uh, is, is it's, I mean, it's a grimoire. It's, that's what it's supposed to be. Um, hmm. That, that's a that's a good point absolutely absolutely well job thank you so much for sharing your magic with us here today and um good luck for all your upcoming ventures keep us posted and um once again thanks for making contact and well have a have a good time over there in seattle <laughs> thanks so much rudolph i really appreciate the chance to uh come on and talk with your listeners sure thank you bye now bye Well, it's amazing those things that exist in the world of the occult and magic and 
that we, well, at least me, but I'm sure you too don't know about yet. And it's great to learn those things when you run a podcast and you discover all kinds of interesting people. And thanks, Joby, for coming up uh, to me and uh, suggesting that topic and not only the topic on tabletop magic, tabletop gaming magic was really interesting for me and I'm sure for many of our listeners too. But it brought me also to meet uh, Morgan Lee Serong. She came into my life because Joby Bittman asked me about his work and said, hmm, I have to combine this interview with somebody else, with something else. Morgan suggested Morgan Lee and uh, here Morgan Lee Serong is with us. And let me tell you who she is. We go to the other side of the world, really, because Morgan lives on a farm in sunny Tasmania, Tasmania, that island off the south coast of Australia. And as she says there, she ponders the ontological status of cyberspace and raises tasty animals and grows grains. She is a pagan theologian. She's a farmer and she is a virtual world developer and has an addiction, as she says, to science fiction. Um, and she works on the mixes that we call reality, as she says herself. When you look at her um, picture on the website, you see she stands in the middle of books. She's one of those book nerds, visibly. Hmm, now if you look into the mirror, Rudolf. Right. Well, Morgan, she has pondered about cyberspace a lot. She did a PhD about it. And that PhD um, is called Virtually Real, Being in Cyberspace. And I will put you the link to that work because it's highly interesting. It's all about how things that happened online are not games or not, not real, but they are real. And also actually... Um, Magic is happening there. Well, I'll let her explain if you don't believe me, but it's quite amazing how people do actually magical and ritual work together in virtual reality. It's fascinating. Uh, I discovered a whole new world and, uh, and as this magic is being done, of course, it also affects our real world or as the virtual reality people call it, it affects our meat space. Hi, the meat space world. I learned that name. I find it a wonderful name, meat space. So do rituals done in cyberspace actually work? Well, Morgan is actually going to answer that question beyond many more questions in this upcoming interview. Um, before the interview, though, as you are used to, you're going to hear some more music. And this second piece of music is called Gone. Gone. Yes, just Gone. And it's also, of course, again, by Crystal Linder from his CD, Across the Never, which I introduced once again earlier in this episode. So we are now gone. And when we have gone, we come back and meet in Tasmania, and not Tasman Island, as I said at the beginning of the interview. Oh, God. Well, I corrected myself, but still, I'm ashamed. It's Tasmania, and we're going to meet in Tasmania Morgan Lee Serong, Dr. Morgan Lee Serong, and talk about magic and ritual 
in the cyberspace in virtual reality. Okay, let's go with the music and up to Tasmania. Dreams and labyrinths of glass in green. 
And now we have gone, well, far, far away from where I am. I, I checked it. It's about 17,000 kilometers away from Vienna. We, we, are, we are going to the very, very south of Australia to the Tasman Island, believe it or not. And we are meeting Morgan there. Hello, Morgan. How are you today? Hello. It's not Tasman Island. It's Tasmania. Tasmania, sorry. You see, we Europeans, we always pretend to know everything and it's all the other way around. Um, that's why I never say down under because why should you be under and we are up? No, you're just the other side. <laughs> that's um, so um, great to have you, Morgan. And um, maybe you just let us know briefly um, your background. And we are going to speak about virtual reality and magic today. But let our people just know quickly who you are, what brought you to that subject and why we're speaking here today. Um, I got brought to this subject when I was trying to have an idea about what to do for my PhD. And I was, by chance, in the virtual world of Second Life. And mm -hmm. um, I saw a group of people there performing uh, a Wiccan ritual in Second Life. And for me, as a pagan, paganism is a very experiential thing. Mm -hmm. And it's deeply... Um, embedded in our in our bodies and our actions and the things we do when we do I mean, ritual. sensuality probably yes right? yes and when we do mm. ritual and I saw these people doing this this Wiccan circle ritual a nature religion ritual in the virtual world and I'm like why would they do that mm. and it really intrigued me to find out you know what was going on with this choice to do this ritual in an environment that seems to me would be disconnected from the, from mm. the physical world that nature religions are all about. And so I was intrigued and I started down this road um, to find out why they were doing this stuff. And it opened a cornucopia of things. I'd been previously a, a multimedia developer and I'd never done virtual world development until that stage. And then I started getting into Second Life and really enjoyed doing virtual world development in there because the building tools are very powerful. And then mm -hmm. started to get into the communities and meet, go to pagan communities and eventually got into uh, ancient Egyptian role play community. And right. for me, that was uh, amazing because – my own patron deity is Juhuti, and um, I have a background. My, my background is in Hermeticism, so obviously I was super interested to go into Egypt and find out what these people were doing in a role-play community. Basically, they're role-playing ancient Egypt, and they build a virtual environment, which is ancient Egypt, and then they go about what they think are the actions of ancient Egyptian people. Mm -hmm. 
Well, you're you're well arrived on the Sauce Hermes podcast. Then, if Jehuti is your is your patron saint, so to speak, indeed. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's really exactly. But um, so, your PhD in what in what academic um, um, subject did you did you then do it? Well, that's actually a more interesting question than you realize, because my undergraduate work and my honors work, I was all majoring in religion and theology, specializing in the Western esoteric tradition. Mm -hmm. But when I came to do my PhD, I had just moved to Tasmania. And um, the University of Tasmania, by decree, does not have a department of religion. Right. Uh, for strange historical reasons. Um, so I actually had to do my uh, PhD in sociology, sociology of religion, which wasn't as strange as it seems for being a theologian. I had done some sociology in my undergraduate work, but my, my PhD was done as an ethnography. It was, if you like, the story of what happened to me when I went into a virtual world mm -hmm. and was transformed for it. So, yeah, I was um, – I was doing sociology of religion effectively. Okay, well, that that is an interesting uh, issue, yes, because uh, it, it, somehow you you know both sides of it, the background of the religious issues, but also what effect the technology then has on the on the person who works with it, right? Indeed, and so it was a really good combination of my previous skills, being a technology person and. Um, um, mm -hmm. and a religious person so this subject the subject of this uh, of this uh, episode here it's a bit a rare episode as we have two people t talking from two different angles on a little bit of the same subject it's on magic in a virtual world yours being the virtual online world so how how did you What was the result of your studies in basically speaking now? I mean, you very rightly said the sensuality of the experience of the magical experience doesn't occur, at least not in the way that we would expect it to be in the real world. So how was that substituted for? What was the difference there? Okay, so when we enter a virtual world, we are, as beings who live in one world, where we have many abilities and capabilities, but who have chosen to enter another world as a phantasm, mm -hmm. whereby our abilities are limited by the form we must take to enter it. We must be an avatar right. to enter a second life, right? Right. So like a god that manifests in our world as an avatar, our, our self, our physical self in what we call in cyber studies, what we call meat space, that is the physical world where our consciousness is in the meat. I, I like that expression, meat space. I learned it from you. I had never heard it before. <laughs> oh, well, I did not. I did not coin it. We can we can thank cyberpunk for that. Yeah, sure, sure. But still, so, you were the first to tell me. <laughs> oh, cool! It's a great term. I love it. It really, yeah. it really is very visceral about how Absolutely. we are manifest here in the physical world. So like a god that comes into our world as an avatar, our meat space self continues to exist in its native reality, that is this physical world, but mm -hmm. our avatar self exists as the means by which we experience that virtual world. So 
in my theological conception, the divine totality, whatever you want to call it, created mm -hmm. matter from energy, being right. from non-being. So now what we've done with the creation of virtual world is that humans can create form without matter in virtual worlds. And to me, that seems to complete an oscillation. It like creates a balance. You've got energy to matter, and now we've got um, matter without form, without energy, if you like. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's um, it's a, like a new. It's like a test bed for a new form of society, for new forms of being. It's almost a post-humanity test somehow, isn't it? Well, some writers have postulated that people born into the internet age are what they call digital natives and have, you know, been born natively into those words. But I don't think that's actually true because to be a digital native, you'd have to be totally born into that world and never have a <laughs> yeah. conception of yeah. this physical world. So, um The, the big question about my thesis is, in virtual worlds, people are always deriding virtual worlds and game worlds because they say that's not real. You know, it's just a game. Mm -hmm. It's not real. Mm -hmm. So the key of my thesis was ontological. What is real? What does it mean to be real? And what does it mean to be in a real place having real interactions? So to right. do that, you have to write a lot about what reality is constituted by. So, mm -hmm. and, and look at that question of why are people going into that world where your interactions are mediated by the technology. You can't feel, you can't touch, you can see, you can hear, you can't smell, you can't do all those things that you'd like to do when you're doing a ritual. Lots of writers in occultism have written about the necessity to stimulate as many senses as possible when doing ritual. Why? Yes. Why would you choose to go into a world where those senses are limited in order to do that thing. And so why are people doing this? And one of the reasons I found that people are doing that is because meat space is shit. People are not happy in meat space. They mm -hmm. want to they want to change the meat space world, but they feel powerless to do that. Um, right. So they are choosing to move into the virtual world where their perceived agency is increased. You can build your own world literally from the ground up. You, it's a world where fun is prioritized and where physical violence is impossible. Yeah. Um, and there's also an element where they feel that this fun, this agency will be destroyed if the connection to their meat space identity is made. So they all mm -hmm. want to be anonymous in that world. And um, there's a theory about people's behavior on the internet, which basically says that if you give people anonymity, they tend to behave very badly. 
Right. Um, but in Second Life, I found that there was some of that. There are people pushing the boundaries and engaging in things that would be illegal in the meat space mm. world. And that's all the kind of stuff that you always see in the media about Second Life. You always see, sure. you know, sensational I mean, stuff. That, it's all about sex. It's all about that, whatever. That creates the headlines, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's right. But um, um, so, uh, yeah, so that's not what happens when people go into a virtual world. They don't generally behave really badly. They feel more empowered. They feel like they can control that world more and be more in control, even though they're not actually anonymous at all. They're pseudonymous in Second Life, but like mm -hmm. as we all know, that and true anonymity on the internet is a very um, elusive yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, the important thing about Second Life is that it's about role play. Okay, Second Life mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. not a game. Yeah, yeah, in, exactly. In, in a game, you have victory conditions. You have things you have to do in order to win the game. There's no winning yeah. second life. There's no losing second life. Yeah. The game revolves around the social relations and the social interactions between the characters, between the people and, you know, themselves. Mm -hmm. But one really interesting aspect of that is that there is a series of selves, what I call serial selves, so when you go in a second life, you're not called a player, you're called the resident. You exactly, go in there, yeah. you create an avatar to represent yourself, and it can be anything. It can be an accurate presentation of your physical self or it can be a cardboard box with legs. It doesn't matter. <laughs> so you go into a role-play community like the ancient Egyptian communities and you dress your character up into what people think ancient Egyptian people were like. Um, and then you role play your character. It's like there's not scripted. It's just people go in there and you've got to off the cuff, you know, do your mm -hmm. thing. So there's an interesting thing that's going on, which makes it very easy to understand doing ritual in a virtual world. And that is that series of selves, the serial selves. And when you, you, you will create a character, one sets out to perform a particular self via one's avatar, and in this case, a particular yeah. Egyptian-themed self. Mm -hmm. And that self is informed by the self that is the everyday human actor in meat space, which, right. from, from my theological viewpoint, is informed by one's non-material higher spiritual self, which is the self that – is a being that has many serial incarnations in this physical world. So from this perspective, our physical manifestations are like the avatars of a virtual world, having been created by our higher selves to allow them to play in the meat space world. And in turn, our physically manifest self, informed by the higher world, creates the character we play in our lives here. So it's like we've got a series of – Avatars, our higher self making an avatar in the meat space world, that self making an avatar in the virtual world. And for me, with a panentheistic conception, of course divinity is present in the virtual world because it's present everywhere. Yeah, sure. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, that that's an interesting conclusion you you you're making there. Um, oh. Oh. Uh, you mentioned, and uh, of course, that's the point of view that people who are not uh, so used to Second Life and similar um, um, possibilities um, are not so much aware of, like me, for example, that the reasons why you go there in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, I could also see another reason to go there because we live in a world that where occultism, as always has been, um, is not some is not a majority game, mm-hmm. right? It's not something mm-hmm. that uh, a lot of people do. And you, in the Victorian times, they met in London in their Golden Dawn. Mm-hmm. Um, later on, they met uh, uh, in more local groups. But it's always been a kind of a difficulty to find the group for you. You have to make compromise. So, and now you have the internet. And now suddenly you find all the documents online and it's a huge mass of things. Too much, in my opinion, often because it makes it difficult for people to, to choose. And now you have that possibility to suddenly create your group in that virtual world. That would, for me, be also a possible motivation of people to go there. Did you see that happen or is that something I imagine or make up because I see it from my point of view? No, it's totally true and it's what um, it's what in sociology we call social deviance. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that you feel that you belong to a particular group. And the great thing about the internet is it's both a great thing and a bad thing. Okay, so the internet is the ultimate example of a process by which people are emancipated from the controls of society. And and then they become responsible to those of a smaller group, the people in their community online. Um, and they're not doing this necessarily because they're transgressors of meat-based rules, although some of them are, but because um, if there's only half a dozen people on the planet who like to dress up and do ancient Egyptian occultism, then mm. the internet makes it really easy for them to find each other. So right. once they do find each other, this process, this process of social cohesion occurs, which normalizes for them their activities, right? So in that solidarity, they come to see conventional conceptions of their activity as a poorly informed conceptualization of an other from whom they choose to disassociate themselves. Mm-hmm. So this is happening today on a huge scale and you get things like the QAnon cult where people connect Mm. together because they feel they have a certain thing and they all get together and reinforce that behavior. So that's a kind of a bad part of it. But a good part of it is that people who feel they can't express themselves fully in meat space can go in a virtual world and do it. And in our community, for example, we had people who lived in the Bible Belt in America and they felt there was no way that they could express their interest in in esotericism, in pagan yeah. religions, in whatever, exactly. in those spaces. There were we had people from Iran, for example, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, who 
you know, really couldn't do this stuff. And they people, it's that's why I say that the virtual world is a test bed for a new society because it enables us to be in a space where physical violence is impossible. There's still emotional emotional violence. And yeah, sure. yeah. once people, it's amazing how quickly one makes a connection with one's avatar, especially if the avatar looks exactly like your physical world self. Mm -hmm. um, you make a really strong connection with your avatar. You quickly get a feeling of personal space about your avatar. Mm -hmm. um, and I used to teach this when I teach to undergrads it, uh, at um, university where I'd get them, I'd take them into a virtual world and I'd engineer a situation where they, their avatars would end up falling into this deep, deep water that they couldn't get out. And they invariably started to freak out in their meat space selves going, oh, I'm like, what's the matter? Oh, I'm trapped in the water. I'm going to die. And I'm like, you know your avatar doesn't need to breathe, right? <laughs> but they so had this connection, this really fast and visceral connection with their, with their avatar that they made that – they had that physical reaction. And that's sort of the key to why you're doing – Ritual in Second Life that's uh, embedded, you know, that's normally a ritual done in a space that's heavily embedded in the physical world because you do really quickly make that connection with your avatar. Mm -hmm. And indeed, when it came to the time where I was doing initiation rituals in, in the virtual world, um, that is exactly what happened to me. I really quickly had made a connection with my with my avatar and indeed oh, – because one of the questions about the reality of virtual worlds, is it real, is it whatever, is for me it was a question, if you do a ritual in a virtual world, does it work? And uh, in order to test that, you've got to be able to define – and because you're in the academy and we're all pretending to be scientists – um, even in the humanities, um, you've got to have some, you know, quantifiable thing that you can say my ritual worked. Yeah. And, and the thing uh, that I used in my study because I was completely doing a qualitative study, not a quantitative study because you can't quantitate um, sacred space was did I experience that sense of sacred space doing a ritual in the virtual world in the same way that I experience it when I do a ritual in meat space. And I found exactly what you would expect, to be honest, which is well, what I expected. Lots of people thought it was really weird and strange. If you do a ritual in a virtual world, if you are – Perhaps I should preface this by saying that in the Egyptian role play communities we were in, some people in those communities were pagans. Some people had actual, you know, esoteric occult knowledge and practice going, but other people were just there to dress up and play as Egyptians. <laughs> so we, uh, I became a priest in the Temple of Osiris in one of these communities. And the role of the priest in those communities was to teach people about ancient Egyptian religion and to initiate other priests into the priesthood. And I did – I contrast in my thesis two different initiation rituals. One 
which was done where all the participants in that ritual were practicing occultists. Mm-hmm. Um, and another one, which was done, which was led by two people who were practicing occultists, but the person actually doing the initiation ritual was just doing it because they wanted to dress up and play Egypt. Okay. And these two different rituals played out very, very differently. Now, I'm for sure, yeah, sure. yeah, for me, um, I very early on met with another occultist um, that mm-hmm. I already knew, um, uh, Mog Morgan, that we all know and love. We all know, exactly. Yeah, um, I met with him and he was one of the people who introduced me to this ancient Egyptian community. And I hadn't been in that community very long. I hadn't, you know, assimilated the norms of that community. I was pretty new to the whole second life thing. But I knew Mog already and uh, he was one of the people at the first initiation ritual I did there. Now, because I was really new to Second Life, even though I knew that Mog and the other person doing the ritual with me were both occultists and I had a background as culture, I didn't mm-hmm. expect this ritual to work because I'm yeah. like, oh, this is, you know, how is this going to work? We're, we're disintermediated from the physical world, you know, and I thought this will be a role play, this will be we'll, we'll do a thing. But I'm like, okay, I'm going to throw myself into this role, as it were. And I treated it in the same way that I would treat um, a ritual, any ritual that I was going to do. I prepared mm-hmm. myself in the same way that I would prepare for a ritual. You know, I bathed, I put my robes on in meat space mm-hmm. and um, meditated, you know, did it in the environment in which I normally did my daily ritual in meat space, put my computer right. in there, did it there, and sat myself down at the computer and thought, okay, let's see what happens. But as I placed my fingers on my keyboard, it suddenly felt like a ritual object, which might seem a strange thing to say about a computer keyboard. The keyboard um, itself, you mean? Yeah, okay. Yeah, the keyboard mm-hmm. itself felt like a ritual object. There was – I had inserted myself into ritual awareness by doing the same preparations I would normally do for a ritual, and, mm-hmm. the, and the keyboard, the computer was there. I had already triggered in myself that space of preparing for ritual and being in that space. And so, yeah, it was very, very strange. That's all I can say, very, very strange. Um, so – um, then I went into the thing and I did the ritual and I went through the actions of the ritual, the responses and the calls and the all the things one does in a typical ancient Egyptian initiation mm-hmm. ritual. And then suddenly I realized that my total awareness, I was in a flow state in that, in that, the virtual space and my awareness was totally on in that space. And then I noticed that I could feel that feeling of sacred space that one feels when one does a, you know, a a ritual Mm -hmm. in, in meat space. So that was a ritual where I went into it thinking, Oh, this will just be a role play. But in the end it turned into a real ritual that, um, 
that had a big effect on me and so much of an effect that once the ritual was finished, everybody else logged off, I logged off, and then suddenly it was like a switch. Suddenly my awareness came back into the meat space self of myself, but I still had that feeling of sacred space, so much so that in the, the meat space I had to do like the closing of a ritual in meat space because mm-hmm. I felt if I didn't, I would be leaving it hanging, even the gate, though we the gate open. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. I had to do that in the meat space. So, so here's the question is, as far as I know, my avatar has no perceptions. It's just an affordance for me mm-hmm. there. So who was the I who is experiencing that thing. I think that I was experiencing it where my eye was focused at that time, which is to say that my will had projected myself into that space. So I suggest that the experience of being embedded in cyberspace like that, it's kind of akin to the experience of astral space. You know, where is our experience located when one encounters the divine in astral space? Mm -hmm. I think it's the same thing when you're doing it in cyberspace. The same as when you're, you know, visiting an astral plane, you lose the perception of the self as body-centered. Yeah, sure. Um, And that's exactly what happened to me in that first ritual that I did. And – The other thing that's worth mentioning is that when I started this, I'm like, why would you do this? Because the virtual space doesn't have touch. It doesn't have smell. It doesn't have this. But actually, it doesn't have less sensory input. It has more. And the reason for that is the input of the virtual source, all the stuff that's happening in the computer that you are seeing and hearing but not touching and smelling, that is added to your full range of Um, sensations in Mm -hmm. the meat space world. So it's adding an extra layer of -hmm. stimulation rather than the more commonly perceived lack thereof. I mean, that might be a stupid question now, but would you, for example, light an incense uh, uh, in your room where you were having that ritual while you were uh, to, while you were online to substitute for example for that sensual experience or would you not do such things? Oh no, I would totally do that. Um, mm. And when I was doing the initiation ritual with Mog, the um, one of the things that your avatar does in the ritual is light incense because that's what you do in a ritual, right? Sure. Even though you can't yeah. smell it in the virtual world, especially mm. in the ancient Egyptian temple ritual, incense is a oh, very gosh. important place. So you do that. And then if you, you – I lit my incense in the physical world, but then I went into that thing and I started getting into this flow state and getting caught up in the ritual. And then my avatar did the lighting the incense thing and suddenly I could smell the incense. Mm. You know, it was like I'd kind of forgotten about it because I'd done it in the meat space world and got so absorbed in the virtual world. But once, yeah, my, yeah, av- yeah. once my avatar did that thing, it was like, oh, we'll turn that on now. And and that came back and really strongly hit me. Amazing, amazing. Does this way of perception, this way of experience uh, teach you, us, 
anything about ritual in real world? Has it changed some things in the way you perceive a real life um, ritual? Or is it just, I wouldn't call it a replacement, an extension maybe to, to ritual work in, the, in, in real life? Hmm, I've, had, I've had the two worlds combine in ways where one time, for example, I was building, I built this full-size replica of the temple of Hatshepsut at Karnak mm. um, in Second Life where we also did rituals. And one time I was building, building and building in the temple, building this temple, and suddenly I just, my consciousness, like my meat space consciousness had this like vision full-on vision of being a priest in a temple in ancient Egypt mm -hmm. and doing stuff. And that was, that was quite, that was quite trippy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So any provision you think that, or provision, any, any foresight you have, how the future could be changed by the use of the internet in, not in the classical way we are now used to it by, chatting and by downloading PDFs or whatever, but by using virtual reality for spiritual activity, let's put it wide. Well, there's a lot of people doing various types of spiritual activity in places like Second Life. There's Christian mm. denominations who are running services in Second Life, mm. for example, for people who are unable to attend church for various reasons and of mm -hmm. course with the current pandemic that's just all huge you know of course of course um, so that, that you would expect that to happen on zoom rather than on second life as the as the regular guy right um yeah i suppose so um but um i think that there are some limitations of virtual worlds that make some things difficult for example mm. there is no such thing as making eye contact in a virtual world Yeah. Um, and gestures and facial expressions are very rudimentary and clunky. Until mm -hmm. that problem can be solved, it's going to be um, not good. But the things that are good about it, for example, in our communities, in the ancient Egyptian communities, we have people from all around the world. We have people from all different cultures. And that created a real richness and diversity in the community. Mm -hmm. And that really fostered this awareness that – We are a global species. We are people from all different cultures, and yet here we all were with this mm. common focus focus of doing rituals and you know um, uh, having having you know, doing esoteric things and considering esoteric. And it brought a richness to our communities that is often lacking. Um, in, in physical space. I mean, you might be a person who, for example, lives on a little island at the bottom of the world where there's not a lot of occultists, mm -hmm. you know, and to be able to have daily contact with other people, people like Mog, for example, mm -hmm. um, yeah. is a really enriching and useful experience. I'm sure. I'm sure. It needs some 
a computer power though we must be aware of that you can't do that on your little iphone but um it yeah is, you do is, you do yeah. second life is a massive hardware hog you Absolutely. do need mm. a fast computer you do need a fast graphic card you do need a fast internet collect- connection yeah definitely um, it must be said because people shouldn't imagine it's so easy yes yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. that is totally true yeah yeah well Morgan, this was a fascinating talk. Thank you so much. Awesome. I, I, I may say that, um, well, thanks to Mark, that you, who you have mentioned several times. It's not the first time I say that on this podcast. Mm. Mark, I call him the art director of the occultism. <laughs> he knows so many people. He knows everybody. Um, exactly. And um, uh, thanks to Mark, I discovered you and also more about you than what we were talking about here on that particular subject today and i may say as much that we plan you and i that we plan to do a longer talk about those other subjects later um, in a few months uh, when when time will permit more time for you also on your end and i'm very much looking forward to that and i believe that our audience who have listened to you today will already also be looking forward to that moment thank you thank that you would so be much. lovely Thank you, Morgan, and have a good time down there in Tasmania, not Tasman Island, Rudolf, <laughs> bad guy, Tasmania, and um, thanks so much for your time. You're very welcome. No more lights on the road
Well, I was so taken away by introducing Morgan to you that I introduced Gone, the piece of music that was played before the interview, but I forgot to introduce this last piece of music that we just heard now. Well, of course, it was always by also by Christo Linder and from his CD Across the Never, but this third piece was called Never Said Alien. Never Said Alien, right? So... Once again, thank you to Christer for all that superb music. And thanks to Morgan, Morgan Lee Serong for, I think, a really fascinating talk about that subject, virtual reality, ritual and magic and all of it. Um, great stuff. And uh, Joby, Joby, thank you for your wonderful talk on tabletop gaming magic and for the idea of making me think to bring that new show together. I hope you liked it, guys. I really hope you enjoyed it because it was great fun for me to make something else uh, this time. Well, I try to make new ideas from time to time and um, I hope you enjoyed that. And thank you for listening. It was great to have you here. And while we're talking about, well, it's not completely new idea. That would be really wrong to say that. But, um, well, next week, somehow, um, my guest is from a field that has not yet really been presented on this show, but that even though it's not going to be um, the center of attention of this show often, but it can happen from time to time, especially when we talk to someone who is so interesting as my guest next week. My guest next week is Barbara Handclaw, and she's not only an astrologer, but she's, of course, a great writer and she is a channel and she is talking to us about her personal experiences and her trilogy of fiction that has been a huge success lately. The uh, uh, trilogy of revelations, it's called the latest of the three books just appeared and uh, it is called the revelations of the source and We'll be talking about the nine levels of consciousness. We're going to talk about um, the Pleiadian agenda. And that's all stuff that we don't talk a lot about here on the show. Um, it's close to new age, but it is not uh, new age to me. It is something much more special. And Barbara, Barbara Handclaw, is somebody really special. I had great pleasure and joy talking to her and um, well that will be our next show our next episode next week on december 19 the last show before christmas already believe it it's going to be episode 17 and the show after that will already be on boxing day as the english say on 26th of december hmm. amazing and that will be the last show of the year wow two more shows to go for this year 2021 Let's see what 2022 will bring, but we are far off that. We'll talk about that in two weeks. Right. For today, that's all. And thanks for listening. And do come back next week. I'll be always in will be always a great pleasure to have you on this show as my audience. And for today, what will I tell you? Yes. Take care. Stay tuned. Hear you soon.